Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome to Clubhouse. My name is Joy Livingston, and I am standing in for Stevie Kim. Uh, She is off in Campania, I believe, this week, doing, you know, food and wine tasting, and she's filming more content for the Mama Jumbo Shrimp YouTube channel, which is the Italian Wine Podcast sister channel. So she's having fun down there. And um, so here we are in Verona. And... um, Clubhouse is uh, every Thursday usually, but this is a special one that we're doing. And today's fireside chat is uh, with Dominic Zucchetto, um, and it's Michele Longari who's going to be uh, moderating. So, um, hi there, Michele. Hi, Joy. How are you? I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce you really quickly and then ask you a couple questions uh, before I hand you over and. Um, and you take it away. So um, you are, were a computer engineer in Emilia-Romagna, uh, but you always had a passion for food and wine. And then you went on to do your professional sommelier diploma course with the Italian Sommelier Association and ended up taking the AIS sommelier diploma in 2013 and then that same year you moved to the UK and started an MSc program in wine business management at the Royal Agricultural University. By the way, you can stop me at any point if I have anything wrong. No, <laughs> um, and all good. Okay. And then you accepted a job offer from Hay Hayes Wines. Hay yeah. Wines. Um, and um, it's a, a, an independent British wine merchant importers, and your official role is purchasing director, uh, which uh, you you started eight years ago. You're still there today. Where where yeah. in the UK are you? So uh, the company Hey Wines. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here because normally I listen to this uh, uh, series uh, uh, as a listener, so to be part of it, uh, it's. Uh, quite exciting so thank you very much for the for the invite. no that's uh, wonderful at the moment we have uh, only a few listeners but it will be put on the italian wine podcast and it, it's a super uh popular show so uh, that's where you get you know many 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 more listens so this is just sort of like the the small precursor but anyway go yeah. ahead yeah so the company Hey Wise is based in uh, Ledbury, Herefordshire, uh, but I actually live in uh, the southwest of England in uh, in Devon. And uh, as uh, you uh, quite rightly pointed out, uh, until 10 years ago, uh, let's say uh, my professional life was uh, completely different. I was uh, a computer engineer with a very big uh, passion for wine. Uh, but then uh, um, when I actually started my sommelier diploma in Italy, uh, I wasn't even sure 100% at the very beginning that uh, I wanted to take the final exams. Because to be honest with you, at the beginning, I just wanted to learn something more uh, about wine. But uh, eventually, uh, the more I got involved uh, with wine and the less I wanted to be involved with computers and coding, if that if that makes sense. So uh, this, this is 
this is why I decided to, uh, let's say, uh, change my career, take a big change in my career and finish my diploma, move to the UK, uh, focus on uh, wine business management and in particular on business strategy. And uh, then, yes, as you pointed out, uh, uh, I received a job offer from Haywise uh, almost eight years ago. And uh, I'm still working from the same company. Uh, I mainly take care of uh, our imports management from uh, uh, Italy, uh, France, and Spain. And uh, uh, actually, uh, one month ago, at the end of, of July, uh, I also became an Italian wine ambassador. I uh, took my Vinita uh, International Academy exams uh, in London uh, at the end of July. So this is uh, how actually I managed to uh, meet uh, Kim and Stevie the first time. And uh, so this is uh, uh, why uh, I'm here uh, today. So once again, thank you for having me. No, it's wonderful to have you. Actually, that's a really good point. I didn't mention that, that, that uh, I did know that, that you had just recently become an, um, uh, an ambassador with us at, uh, in London. Um, so yeah, congratulations for that, because I'm told it's a very difficult program to, to, to go through. Um, so before I, I, I should probably ask you, um, why did you choose the producer that you chose? Why did you produce, uh, why did you choose Dominic Zucchetto to, to interview today? Yeah. So, um, actually when, uh, um, um, you got in touch with me and you asked me, uh, to think about a producer to basically interview during this, uh, uh, series, I immediately talk about uh, uh, Loredan Gasparini, and uh, so uh, I immediately gave a call to Dominic, who is actually the uh, European brand ambassador for uh, uh, Loredan Gasparini. And uh, the main reason is because uh, obviously Loredan Gasparini is one of our suppliers, and uh, the more I uh, have discovered the wine, and the more uh, I got uh, um, excited about what they are doing, because basically. Um, they are focusing all their efforts on uh, two, let's say, two main appellations, the Asolo Prosecco DOCG and the Montello DOC, uh, that uh, uh, don't have uh, the popularity uh, they deserve for completely different reasons. So when you asked me to contact the producer, I immediately thought about uh, Loredan Gasparini because I really think that uh, we could have uh, a very interesting chat about uh, Prosecco the, from Colli Asolani DOCG and the very almost unknown and very small appellation from Montello and uh, Venegazzo. Okay, that's oh, that's awesome. And 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 so, can you expand on what you you think that uh, the the listeners will take away? Um, what they might learn about um, other than you know obviously what you just mentioned. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Joy, to be honest with you, I really hope that after uh, um, this interview, all the listeners will be able, first of all, to get a better understanding of uh, uh, the, the two different appellations, so the Asolo di Ocici Prosecco and the Montello DOC, but also um, it's uh, uh, something very important that uh, I think we, we probably are going to be able to... Uh, make comparison between uh, the Asolo Prosecco DOCG uh, as appellation and uh, the nearby Valdobbiadene Prosecco. And also we'll be able to make comparison between uh, the Bordeaux blend typical of uh, Montello DOC and other Bordeaux blend uh, made uh, in Italy. Perfect. Okay. Uh, well, on that note, I'm going to pass you over. Is, um, is Dominic there? Yes. Hi. Hello. I'm here. Hi. How are you? Very well, thank you. You, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, you guys take it away, and I will come back at the end to stop you, and um, perhaps you might have a question. Um, and um, either way, I will talk to you guys later. Okay, ahead, thank Mickey. you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joy. So, hi, Dominique. How are you? Hi, Michele. Very well, thank you. You? 
Yeah, not too bad, thanks. And uh, thank you very much for accepting uh, my invite to be here today. Um, I really, I, I really think we can have a very interesting conversation about uh, uh, the work you have been doing uh, at uh, Loredan Gasparini and uh, all the different uh, wines and appellation you are currently uh, focusing on. But first of all, let me just uh, give uh, uh, to our listener uh, a brief uh, uh, introduction about uh, yourself. So. So uh, you uh, were actually born in London, but then uh, were raised in Italy uh, near Valdobbiadene. And uh, obviously, uh, I guess that uh, the fact that you have been raised uh, in uh, in Quero near Valdobbiadene has uh, a lot of importance for uh, how you uh, ended up working in uh, in the wine industry. Uh, obviously, at the very beginning, uh, you were studying economics and uh, working. Uh, in uh, uh, during the harvest, just uh, you know, to get some uh, uh, pocket money. Uh, but then, uh, when you finish your study, you really wanted to. Uh, uh, become, uh, let's say, an, a sales agent for uh, uh, a winery. And uh, for the fact that obviously we were raised in an English-speaking family, the foreign markets were the uh, first uh, uh, idea you, you had. Then uh, it took some time for you to find this uh, way, also because it's a very competitive uh, market in that, uh, in that segment. Uh, but then, uh, after uh, other job experiences five years ago, you accepted a job offer from uh, Venegazzo Vini, that basically is um, um, a company that uh, unites uh, uh, two different uh, uh, family uh, vineyards and a distillery. And so for that moment, you have been uh, uh, managing, uh, uh, let's say, the uh, Venegazzo and also then the Loredan Gasparini brand uh, worldwide. And also you take care of the uh, export markets. And that is actually how we uh, got in contact the, uh, the first time. Um, did I miss something or do you think that I was able to uh, describe uh, your, uh, uh, let's say, your bio pretty well? No, that was perfect, Nikita. No problem. It was really perfect. That's, yeah, that's how I got into wine. Uh, one of the jobs I did before uh, working here at Veniga Suvini, Loredan Gasparini, uh, was, uh, uh, let's say, production in a winery, in a small winery in Vadobiadene. So that's what really brought me into the, the wine world getting to know all the process that goes from when the grapes arrive in during harvest up to the selling of the final product. But then, yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what you said. It's perfectly my history, let's say. Very brief, but that's the important stuff. <laughs> yeah, and uh, obviously I think that for, uh, uh, when, uh, uh, for people working in the wine industry, I think it's uh, uh, always uh, um, a point I think we all have in common uh, is uh, that uh, uh, you cannot actually work in this industry without uh, uh, a real passion for uh, the product itself. And in your case, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think that uh, uh, the fact that you were basically raised near uh, Valdobbiadene and basically you spent uh, uh, all your uh, uh, early years uh, um, seeing uh, uh, grapes uh, harvesting and uh, uh, all these uh, kind of things. I think it was uh, uh, very important also to bring you uh, to the point where uh, um, uh, you are today. So, um, Dominic, if uh, um, you're okay with that, actually, uh, I have prepared uh, um, a few questions for you. And uh, if you are happy, I think we could kick off with the first one and then have uh, a chat about them. What do you think? Perfect. Let's go. Okay. So, Dominic, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, probably one of the main reasons why I wanted to have this uh, chat with you is because uh, um, when uh, I started to discover uh, the, the wines from Loredan Gasparini, and I did, uh, obviously, uh, with due diligence, my research, I uh, found out that uh, um, uh, the family has always been very much focused on uh, the Asolo um, DOCG as a Prosecco appellation, even when uh, all the commercial interests were pushing towards uh, uh, Valdobbiadene, Conegliano, Treviso, uh, the family has always been uh, focused and committed to the Asolo, to the Colli Asolani area for what concerns the, uh, the Glera grapes. Uh, so my question for you is at the same time very simple and uh, I think very complex. Uh, do you think that uh, finally the markets, and uh, I'm talking about both 
local and international markets are starting to give uh, uh, the deserved visibility to the Azolo DOCG Prosecco or do you think that there is, there is still something that uh, uh, needs to be done? Okay, so that's a very nice question. So, well, initially, we need to keep in consideration that, uh, well, the Galera vine, the Prosecco vine, as it used to be called once, but Galera now, uh, has been present in the area for different centuries. Uh, but in our case, in Loredan Gasparini's case, it's not the great variety with which the company started its business. So uh, the, the founder of the company, uh, Leonardo Loredana, uh, was... Um, uh, was a, a a big fan, obviously, of uh, of wines from uh, Bordeaux because he was uh, a direct descendant from noble families in Venice, and because of this, obviously, they were used to drink uh, important wines uh, from the Bordeaux area. And so, initially, when he let's say he saw the potential in the area to plant vines and create his own uh, particular special wine, the the varieties that he planted were actually Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Malbec. So uh, red varieties and not uh, white grape varieties. It was only 20 years later uh, when the, the, let's say the company passed under the property of the Pala family, that are family from Teresa that are uh, still uh, owners of the winery, that uh, they saw uh, the potential to plant uh, white grape varieties as well. So they decided to plant Glera, that is the most important, uh, let's say, vine species in the area. Uh, Chardonnay and Manzoni Bianco. That's a particular indigenous variety uh, that we have there. Uh, so because of the belief in this potential for this white grape called Glera, uh, they decided to buy 30 hectares of land in Javera del Montello. Uh, that's one of the areas. So it's um, on the south side of the Montello Hill. Uh, we have uh, Javera de, the Javera del Montello estate. That is 30 hectares where we grow uh, mostly only Galera grapes. And the, the important thing here is that nowadays uh, our vineyards, so we planted them uh, at the time. And nowadays uh, the vineyards are, uh, we have vines that are 50 to, to 70 years old and with which we're still producing wines. So as in uh, the denomination, the, the Pala family uh, always uh, invested in growing this denomination and creating this denomination. And in fact, it was one of the families who founded in 1985 uh, the consortium, so the Consorzio dei Vini Azolo Montello. And uh, after that, they pushed uh, until the DOCG denomination was recognized in, uh, in 2009. So this is to make you understand how much Doredan Gasparini and the Pada family have been trying to promote and, let's say, give importance to the area because they truly believe and we truly believe in a superior quality Prosecco. Uh, as in regards to your question, uh, I mean, on the local market and the international market, uh, we definitely have seen a great increase in the demand for Azulo Prosecco. Uh, I know that especially abroad, uh, it's typical for people who don't, let's say, uh, aren't that interested in denominations to just go to the supermarket to a wine shop and buy uh, the first bottle with a, a label with Prosecco written on it. But now we're seeing that a lot of people are really looking for Azulo as a denomination because they appreciate uh, the characteristics it has. And just think uh, in regards to that, that uh, the Azulo, the OCG denomination is now the fourth biggest sparkling wine appellation in Italy and has gone from, from a, for a production starting in 2014, uh, more or less, of 3 million bottles, uh, now is at over 20 million bottles. So it makes you understand how this increased during time and how uh, the demand increased also. And what I think is very interesting also is that, um, so the Azo denomination used to be referred to as the secret Prosecco, because obviously it was this smaller denomination of only uh, 18 municipalities. Uh, now we can say it's not the case because, as I told you, it's uh, arrived to 20 million bottles, but it's still very, very small, still a niche if you compare it to Valdobbiadene uh, that produces approximately 100 million bottles a year or the larger uh, DOC Prosecco denomination, so between the regions of Friuli di Venezia Giulia and Veneto, that produce over 600 million bottles. 
So yeah, I would say that uh, we're very happy with where this is going. And obviously we're uh, one of the biggest promoters of Azul Prosecco all around the world. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dominic. And uh, um, I remember we uh, discussed about this also uh, the last time we, we talked. And uh, um, we were talking about uh, how uh, the Azul di OCG Prosecco and Valdebiadene uh, di OCG Prosecco, although they are very close to each other, actually... Um, they are something completely different. And actually, this is uh, the main reason why uh, I think that uh, uh, the Azolo di OCG Prosecco should not be considered like uh, a direct competitor to Valdobiadene, uh, because although we are still talking about the same grape variety and uh, the same production method and the same wine, uh, the final results uh, in the glass are uh, completely different. So would you agree that actually... Uh, Asolo and Valdobiadene are not like direct competitors, but actually they can uh, work together and actually create even more uh, diversity and complexity in the uh, world of Prosecco. Well, yes, definitely. I think that uh, the two denominations uh, were created with this intent because uh, if I were to generally, uh, let's say, differentiate the two denominations, the Asolo and the Valdobiadene, it would probably be with the Vadobiadene, we have a more uh, vertical type of Prosecco with a, a, a richer bouquet, more elegant bouquet on the nose. While for me, uh, with the Azolo, it's a much richer uh, Prosecco. We have a lot of minerality, a lot of acidity that's given from uh, the soil that we have on the Montello Hill. That is this red soil, very rich in iron and minerals that obviously reflect on the resulting wine. So I would say that both uh, have their reason to be on the market. And I think uh, Azul has a lot more potential to grow than, than, than let's say, Vadubiadene because Vadubiadene is already, uh, let's say, very well uh, sold around the world. But Azul has this, this great structure that makes it probably even a better type of Prosecco uh, to pair with all kinds of meals, not only as an aperitif or with certain uh, types of dishes, but it has this this minerality, the structure that makes it perfect for every occasion. Yeah, I I totally agree, Dominic. And uh, um, actually, the, the the other point I wanted to touch with you is the fact that uh, this uh, this uh, structure and this uh, uh, softness that is typical of uh, uh, Azolo di Ocisi Prosecco, uh, I think is also something that. Uh, uh, let the winemaker uh, use less residual sugar uh, to balance the acidity. So, for instance, the uh, your uh, Azul di OCG uh, Prosecco, the, which is uh, a brut, actually uh, is, uh, uh, I would say, in terms of mouthfeel, has the same sensation as you could have from uh, a much sweeter extra dry. And the only thing is because it has much more body and much more uh, uh, structure. And for this reason, even with low Lower residual sugar, you're still able to create this beautiful round character on the palate, and uh, uh, also, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, versatility in terms of uh, uh, food and wine matching. And uh, I remember once uh, in a tasting dinner, I also uh, were able to uh, uh, match. Uh, uh, one uh, Azolo di OCG Prosecco with uh, a beef uh, uh, carpaccio and was something quite uh, provocative at the time, I remember, and people were a bit uh, shocked, but then it worked very, very well because to some extent uh, the structure and the roundness of uh, the Azolo di OCG Prosecco, as you mentioned, doesn't need to be refined just uh, in uh, the aperitive moment, but can also uh, accompany you throughout uh, the, the lunch or uh, uh, the dinner. Um, talking about this point in particular, the um, overall, uh, let's say, uh, difference between uh, uh, Valdobiadene and Collio Solani, uh, I think it's important to note that within uh, um, your range of Prosecco from Collio Solani, you uh, don't have only the uh, traditional uh, spumante brut. Uh, in fact, you also have other three uh, Proseccos uh, that are very peculiar and I would say different uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the standard style of uh, Prosecco. Uh, obviously, um, I'm talking about uh, your Cuvée Monti, the Tasso and also the Cuvée Indigena. Uh, 
could you uh, tell us a bit more about uh, uh, these uh, wines and why Loredan Gasparini decided to put uh, uh, so much effort on these uh, uh, unusual styles and uh, uh, cuvettes? Yeah, definitely. So these, as you said, are three particular selections that we do. So it's important to say that uh, on our estate, uh, we only, I mean, in the production of our wines, we only use grapes from our own estate. So we don't buy grapes from others. And in our vineyard, the Zavala de Montello vineyard, uh, as I said before, we have vines that are up to 50, 70 uh, years old of age. So with these types uh, of, uh, of vines, with this, um, let's say, character, uh, this DNA and the soil that we have in the area, we're able to offer, um, let's say, more, more important, more particular wines. And uh, we could start probably with the one that's uh, the less particular of these three, of these three selections, that, are, that is the Tasso. So uh, the Tasso is a, is a Prosecco, an Azul Prosecco di OCG, made um, with grapes from a vineyard of one hectare that uh, was planted back in the 1980s. And so in this case, uh, we have um, uh, obviously a Martinotti method, so traditional autoclave second fermentation. The only difference is that this fermentation lasts for approximately 180 days. And obviously this uh, slow fermentation at low temperatures offers uh, a great elegance on the nose, but also a great creaminess on the bubble because uh, one of the tricks when doing Prosecco, especially in our case, that we're a small producer, uh, so we can, uh, it's not, let's say, an industrial production that needs to go out uh, continuously. We can leave uh, fermentations there for a lot longer. And this results in a creamier bubble when you go and taste the wine uh, on the final product. And so, yeah, uh, in this case, it's an extra brut. So we're around four grams per litre of sugar residue. And the current vintage that we just uh, stopped selling because we're out of bottles was the 2019 vintage. So... This also to make you understand that with the Azulo, we have the potential uh, of making important wines, important Proseccos that don't necessarily, because we need to debunk this myth that Prosecco needs to be drunk in uh, 12 to 18 months after the production. Because it's true in some cases, but in others, when people put a lot of work in it, you can really conquer great things. And with this, I would then move on to the other wine, that is the, the Monti. That is very interesting. So in this case, uh, it's a traditional method, Azul Prosecco di OCG. So this is from the oldest vineyard that we have in our estate uh, that was planted in 1975, called Monti. And so here, uh, after the pressing of the grapes, we go for a traditional circuit fermentation. So uh, in the bottle, with the adding of lees and, uh, and sugar. So this lasts for approximately 12 months. And then we go and uh, disgorge the wine and we add the same wine. So no liquor uh, expedition, let's say, to give it sweetness, but we keep it as dry as possible. So here is still an extra bruta, but we're really on the dry side. So this is to offer all of the minerality, the character that the Montedo can offer when talking about a Prosecco. In this case, uh, the vintage that we're still setting is the 2017. So just to remark the thing, the, the fact that they don't have to be drunk immediately and they still have great potential. Last but not least, that I think is the most important and most uh, particular uh, creation that we, we made in our, in our winery is the Cuvée Indigena. And this is the, let's say, the selection that helped us uh, go and um, study, recreate, uh, the, um, let's say, the yeast that we use in all of our second fermentations because we're using in all of our second fermentation for the sparkling wines, we're using uh, indigenous yeast that were selected from our own grapes. So approximately 10 years ago, we started trying these uh, spontaneous fermentations. Uh, so just putting the, the must, the wine juice, the grape juice, sorry, in the autoclave and doing one single fermentation. And with this method, we were able to see which ones were the natural yeast present on the, on the vines and on the, on the grapes that would uh, develop the alcohol and CO2 in, uh, in the second fermentation, in, the, that's in, the, in this case, in the single fermentation. And so now we're still producing this wine, and it's, uh, we're currently at the 2020 vintage. 
And as I told you, in this case, it's just a spontaneous fermentation of the mast. So no, not a Martinotti method, not a first fermentation followed by the second fermentation, but it's just one fermentation where we don't add any sugars or any yeast, but the, the wine uh, does everything on its own. So this fermentation lasts more or less uh, uh, eight to 10 months. And then when it naturally ends, we then go and filter the wine and bottle it without any adding of sulfites. So it's, let's say, a more uh, natural type of wine. And the lovely thing about this, the beautiful thing about this wine is that, uh, for example, this year or last year, 2019 vintage, um, the, the fermentation stopped earlier. So we stopped at around 14 grams per liter of sugar residue. So quite on the sweet side. Um, but so we labeled it as an extra dry. In the 2020 vintage, uh, the first time in 10 years, the yeast ate all of the sugars and we got down to approximately zero grams per liter of sugar residue, making it an extra dry. And via this lab that uh, helps us study our yeast, uh, we saw that we had, um, let's say, two new types of yeast that weren't even registered in, uh, let's say, the yeast database. So that's really incredible. So it's beautiful because this wine changes from year to year uh, based on what nature was, nature wants, sorry. So yeah, I think uh, all of these uh, selections really make you understand how we believe in the potential of the Galero grape. And it's obviously we have the Azul, the OCG Brutta, the typical one that is the one we sell the most, but we do also offer these selections uh, to show what the, the Glatter Grape can really achieve if, uh, if you put the work into it. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Yeah, Dominic, and uh, well, thank you very much. Um, I think it was uh, um, very interesting to uh, learn something more about these uh, three uh, selections. And uh, talking about, just very briefly, about the Cuvée Indigena. Um, in fact, I remember that the first time I tried the Cuvée Indigena was uh, actually the 2019 vintage. And as you said, um, it was uh, like on the extra dry style, so quite a good residual sugar. Let's say more in line with what we would expect uh, on the palate from uh, the traditional Prosecco style. Then uh, the next time I tried the Cuvée Indigena, and it was, I think, last year when uh, uh, I came to visit you uh, in uh, Venegazzo, uh, and I tr tried the, the 2020, and uh, actually it was bone dry, uh, I think it was uh, extraordinary because basically it shows uh, the level of complexity that there is uh, uh, in terms of uh, microbiology when we are talking about yeast and fermentation. And I think that the uh, fermentation is something that in particular for uh, uh, Martinotti uh, sparkling wines is something we, we, we take for granted. But actually, I think with the Cuvée uh, Indigena, uh, Loredan Gasparini was able to show the real level of complexity that you can reach when you let, uh, let's say, the wild yeast uh, work that year's uh, uh, production. And uh, um, it's something very, very interesting, something that uh, also teaches a lot about uh, uh, vintage variability, uh, because also I remember I part, uh, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, apart from the fact that uh, the residual sugar between the 2019 and 2020 was completely different. I remember that uh, also the 2019s in terms of uh, uh, aromas, and I think these were mainly secondary aromas brought uh, uh, out from the uh, fermentation. The aromas were much more on the on the warmer side, while uh, the 2020 was much more uh, on uh, the, the mineral notes, fresh notes, and uh, uh, so. Yeast are not only affecting the time when the fermentation stops, but I also think with the Cuvée Indigena, it makes very clear that have a huge, huge impact on also the aroma profiles and flavors that we can get from uh, a wine made by the same grape. Yeah, well, definitely, as you said, those were, or let's say on the nose, uh, on the nose, on the bouquet side, those were the major differences with the 2019, you have this, as you said, warmer, more ripe fruit, very exotic, very uh, particular also for, for a Prosecco. And while on the 2020, probably having eaten all of the all of the sugar, it was much 
drier, much more similar to, uh, let's say, a, a traditional extra brut wine, but also you have those notes uh, from the long lasting in the, uh, on the leaves in the autoclave that give it a more complex uh, structure. So yeah, I'm perfectly, I perfectly agree with what you say. Okay, Dominic. Uh, well, thank you very much. I think we're, um, uh, now I really think we should move to the Montello uh, because that's the other big topic of, uh, of the day that I would like to cover with you. Uh, also because I think Montello DOC is uh, a very small appellation that uh, um, doesn't have uh, uh, the popularity that uh, it uh, deserves. It's, uh, um, and also, by the way, and I think you can tell us something more about that too. Uh, the subdenomination Venegazzu with, within the Montello DOC appellation uh, is basically something that can be used only by Loredan Gasparini in a particular vineyard. So actually, we are talking, we are really, really talking about uh, uh, micro parcels and uh, uh, let's say a micro uh, appellation, which makes everything, I think, even more, uh, more interesting. So, uh, can you tell us uh, a bit more? Uh, about uh, uh, the identity and the history of Montello, of this area, and uh, uh, what are the main characteristics when it comes to wine? Yeah, so, uh, well, to, let's say, to fully understand uh, uh, the history behind uh, the Montello DOC denomination and the Vinigazzu subappellation, we need to go back in time a little bit because uh, this area has always been recognized as a, as a very important uh, wine production area. So we're on the Montello, that is this uh, first hill, small hill, uh, maximum height is 370 meters, but it's the first hill you find when coming up uh, north from Venice and from the Adriatic Sea. So obviously uh, this, um, with uh, our estate is situated just at the south side, at the south foot of the Montello hill. So this obviously creates a unique uh, microclimate. So uh, initially, the first documents that talk about uh, wine production in the area date back to the 1300s. And this was when uh, monks used to live in a monastery, uh, the San Girolamo Monastery on the Montello Hill. And obviously, as you know, uh, monks are quite, uh, quite enjoy the, <laughs> the production of wine. And so this obviously was already part of the, the agricultural production in the area. But the really big boost that gave importance to the Vinigazzu and the Montello uh, area was uh, with the Serenissima Republic of Venice, so after the 1400s. This is because uh, the city of Venice uh, saw uh, on the Montello, in the Montello, great, uh, a great possibility because the Montello at that time was full of uh, oak trees. So for the construction of his ships uh, in the dockyard, uh, they they were very interested in the Montello uh, up to the point when they decided to get full property of the Montello. And just think that during those times, uh, if someone was found going around the Montello, even just minding their own business, uh, you would either get fined or you could even go uh, to prison. Uh, they constructed three prisons around the Montello Hill uh, to put people that weren't supposed to be there. So just to let you understand how important this area was for them. Also because just behind we had the, the Piave River that uh, went down uh, directly to near Venice. And so that was a perfect way to take the wood uh, directly to the dockyards. Uh, so uh, obviously this interest from the city of Venice in the Vinigazzu and the Montello area uh, brought noble families from the city to invest in the area, not only agriculturally, so by planting vines, but also in the construction of villas. So it's really, we have a lot of villas uh, dating back, like our one, the, the Loredan, uh, Spineda Loredan Villa, that it's right next to uh, the winery. And unfortunately, it's not property uh, of the Pala family, but it's now property of a bank. So yeah, that's really, really sad, unfortunately. But uh, that was one of the villas that was uh, constructed during the 1700s uh, by these noble Venetian families. And so they, they decided to uh, invest in the area and they started drinking the wines from Venegazzu in the city of Venice also. And so uh, after this, the wines from Venegazzu started being uh, traded with uh, wines from abroad. They were compared to wines from Greece, Greece-produced wines, and they were taxed one-third more when sold uh, than all the other wines from the area. So this 
uh, lets you understand, makes you understand the importance that the wines already had uh, in those times. We're now uh, preparing uh, a documented paper with a few historic people of the area, historians, uh, that uh, where we found out that during the, the 1800s, uh, nearly 80% of the Vinigatsu, um, uh, the surface of Vinigatsu was uh, full of vines. So just to uh, even more show you the, the, the production, the important production that they had. So in our case, uh, at the end of the 1940s, uh, Count Piero Loredan was a direct descendant of Leonardo Loredan, who at the time uh, had been a doge of Venice, so a very important person in, uh, in, the, in the city. Uh, he saw the potential uh, to go and plant these varieties, as I said before, uh, to create a wine similar to the ones they used to drink from Bordeaux. So he visited Bordeaux and he came back with the vines directly bought from the area, from the south of France, and he planted them there. And so in, um, in, the in 1951, we have our first production of uh, the Vinigatsu de la Casa, that is our historic wine. And it's uh, probably one of the first, if not the first, uh, Cabernet Merlot blend uh, created in Italy, uh, because a lot of other producers that we know produced this type of wine came a lot, a lot later in the, let's say, in the history. And... Uh, because of the great charisma that the the, the importance that the Loredan family had, they were able to uh, let's say give sell these wines and make them uh, put them in all the most important restaurants, hotels, uh, and bars. Let's say in the city of Venice. So that, this this is probably one of the reasons why the denomination or the area uh, were already so well known. So in 1972. Uh, when, for various reasons, the winery uh, was bought, passed under the direction of the Pala family, they obviously understood the, the importance of this area. And uh, it was another fight, as with the Prosecco, to get to, to, let's say, to receive, to have a denomination uh, for this area. So in 1985, again, uh, the DOC Montello Asolo denomination was created. And 23 years later, in 2008, the Vinigatsu subappellation was recognized. So the particular thing about the Vinigatsu subappellation is that it's, um, so it's based on a Bordeaux-style blend. So under the DOC, you can make um, uh, Doc Montello Rosso, that is the general under-denomination for red wines. Instead, the under-denomination Vinigatsu is still uh, this Bordeaux-style blend, but this is exclusive to an area, to a, let's say a vineyard, that is planted uh, inside, inside our estate. So as you said correctly before, uh, we're lucky enough to be the only company producing a Vinigatsu wine under the DOC Montello Azul denomination. It would be like, if, uh, if I can explain, there's another very famous uh, winery that has this, uh, this luck, let's say. I'm sure there's no need uh, for me to tell you the name, but it's in Tuscany. And so it makes us understand how exclusive this uh, terroir is uh, to, to us and, uh, and to the Loredan Gasparini winery. What uh, you had in mind, uh, does it start with S and ends with uh, Asikaya? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, but I'm sure, actually, I'm sure everyone knows, everyone already knows that. But it's just to give an example, so to make people understand uh, easier what, what, what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's exactly the same concept behind uh, uh, what happened in uh, Sassicaia. And actually, with the Venagatsu um, subdenomination, I think it's uh, uh, very important because uh, I think it gave Loredan Gasparini the, uh, the, the idea that actually uh, Loredan Gasparini started uh, a, a specific style of wine. And uh, uh, when you mentioned that the, 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 the Rosso della Casa was actually uh, probably, it's likely to be the very first uh, Bordeaux blend made, uh, made in Italy. It also uh, explains the level of uh, um, historic importance that uh, uh, we have in, uh, in these wines. And uh, uh, since... Uh, uh, Quite correctly, you were talking about also uh, other Bordeaux uh, blends made uh, in Italy and uh, throughout uh, the 20 regions of Italy, we have uh, more or less famous examples of uh, uh, more or less successful uh, Bordeaux blends. Um, 
during my tasting, I think the, the, the first thing I noticed uh, was that uh, um, the Montello wines, and obviously at the moment I'm talking about the, the um, not just the higher end uh, like the De La Casa, but also your, uh, uh, let's say, entry-level uh, uh, varietal uh, Merlot or Malbec or even the Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, I always noted that uh, they, to some extent, they combine the very elegant and refined uh, flavors and aromas of uh, a Bordeaux uh, varieties, but uh, uh, with more, uh, uh, how can I put it, earthy, even uh, uh, rustic notes like uh, uh, forest floor or uh, um, wet leaves, uh, even clay. And this actually brings the wine. First of all, this gives a lot of identity and character to the wines from Montello, makes them completely different to other Bordeaux blends I tried before, and also it brings uh, the wines to a level of complexity that is uh, um, completely different. Uh, would you agree with uh, these uh, these comments? And uh, uh, do you think, uh, if yes, obviously, do you think this could be one of the uh, key distinction of uh, uh, Montello Zolano uh, Bordeaux blend wines? I think you're completely wrong, Michele. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. No, uh, uh, yeah, what you said is is correct because that. So, uh, what we need to specify about the denomination and, uh, in our case, our wines, uh, as you said, also for the uh, the single varieties, so the Malbec, the Cabernet, and the Merlot, is that uh, so not only the Montello. Uh, with its soil and its particular terroir plays an important role in uh, in the character of the wines. But also you have to think that these uh, these vines that we have on the estate, uh, these came directly from the south of France uh, in the 1940s. And even when uh, the vines, some of the vines die, we plant clones of the same vines. So just to make, make an example, we have some uh, clones on our estate that aren't even registered in the National Italian uh, Vine Species Database. So just to they understand how particular the, the production can be, how particular the wines can result. Then obviously there's, the, the as I said, the Montello, the key factor of the Montello that uh, gives all its particular, let's say, nuances to the, to the wines. But then it's uh, part of it is definitely what we do in the winery. So uh, obviously we want to keep the character of uh, the Montello wines. We don't want to go and cover these just to make a wine that's more uh, pleasing for, for the general public, let's say. Uh, unfortunately, we have a, there are a lot of wineries nowadays that do this. They Obviously, they, they aim to make a wine that's super... Uh, super i mean perfect for for the for the medium taste of the medium consumer and so that's why they sell a lot of it but in our case uh, all of the work we do both in the vineyard and then uh, in the cellar so the aging for the aging we only use uh, generally we only use uh, large wooden casks with really light toasters so these don't go and influence uh, the character of the wine too much and all of these particular, uh, let's say, procedures we do are to uh, offer um, a selection, uh, a Cabernet Merlot blend of the area that really reflects the potential of, of the soil, of the terroir. So I think that's why then you have these more uh, particular nodes that aren't um, the typical ones you find in other types of wines like this. Uh, so the earthy notes, uh, uh, the forest floor, and all those kinds of notes that you were referring to before. Yeah, and uh, um, I think that yes, the 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 soil of Montello plus the the way making you are using uh, uh, avoiding a lot of uh, uh, the use of oak that uh, some people would expect on a Bordeaux blend. I think they all. Uh, help to create this uh, style of wine that uh, uh, has a lot of uh, identity because uh, uh, you know some people when the, uh, maybe they uh, check your uh, uh, portfolio and they notice that you have a Cabernet Sauvignon a Merlot or a Cabernet Sauvignon uh, Merlot uh, blend probably they, they, they can think oh this is something I, I already tried but actually uh, what I wanted just to point out is that uh, the combination between soil, microclimate of Montello and the fact that you are following very 
traditional and local while making techniques and you're not adapting to the market. I think it gives uh, to the uh, to the Montello DOC, your Montello DOC wise, uh, um, a lot of character and uh, a unique identity. And that actually this is uh, what uh, um, made them very interesting for me at the um, at the very beginning. So talking about uh, the the Montello, um, I think there is. Uh, uh, this is a question that probably you were expecting because uh, uh, I think we need to spend at least uh, some words on uh, a wine that uh, uh, we can say became a quintessential example of the outstanding results that can be reached uh, in the Montello. Obviously, uh, I'm talking about the Capo di Stato. Uh, could you please tell us a bit more about the history of this wine? and why it became so popular uh, and uh, let's say what is the idea behind this project when uh, uh, the winery started it yeah so uh, the one you're referring to the Capo di Stato obviously it's our uh, gem let's say it's the most important uh, wine uh, in the winery selection and yeah, this was uh, this was created because uh, after the production of the first uh, Vinegar so della Casa uh, Count Pilo Redan wanted, uh, was continuously looking for new ways, new, uh, new methods to create a unique wine that truly could uh, represent the potential of the Venegazzo area of the Montello. And so uh, uh, later on in 1964, uh, he created what, it, what initially was a, a further reserva of this uh, Della Casa Venegazzo. And uh, this was made with, uh, with grapes from the oldest vines planted back in 1946. Uh, the vineyard was is uh, still called Le Cento Piante, that means the 100 plants. And so, yeah, with this wine, obviously, uh, as I said before, he was able, thanks to the importance of his family and the contacts he had in the city of Venice, to have it served in all the most important restaurants uh, and hotels around. Uh, the city and what happened once was that this wine was served uh, to French president Charles de Gaulle at the Gritty Palace in Venice and he was there with his wife and uh, another few guests and he said in front of all of his guests uh, after the sommelier served the wine he said oh taste this incredible wine from Bordeaux isn't it great isn't it fantastic and so the sommelier said uh, I'm sorry Mr de Gaulle but this is not actually a wine from Bordeaux, but it's from uh, the from Vinigazzo, from uh, the Treviso area. And so obviously you can imagine that because of this situation, because of this moment, uh, the wine got an incredible boost in people wanting to try the wine, uh, talking about the wine. A lot of other heads of state uh, wanted to try this wine because it made, it conquered the Gaul and his wife. And so... Why not? Uh, Count Pedro de Dan decided to name the wine Capo di Stato, that means uh, head of state in Italian. And so, um, so after this, he decided to, he wanted to make a special label for the wine. And he asked his friend Tono Zancanaro, who was a, an artist from, uh, from Padova, to create this label. So he came back with two labels, uh, one with a, with a Bacchus, a male, uh, a male figure on the label, and one with a Venus, so uh, a female, uh, let's say, presence on the label. And he said that he couldn't do only one label because, produce only one label, because to him, uh, this label had to represent the, the intensity, uh, the power uh, of the wine with the, with the Bacchus uh, label and the elegance, uh, let's say, the... Yeah, the elegance of the wine with the with the female label, with the Venus label. So initially, Capo di Stato was sold uh, in two, let's say, in a wooden case with two different with two different bottles with two different labels. And unfortunately, later in the nineteen eighties, uh, this was changed. The property decided to change this and uh, started doing only the Bacchus version, as in the one you normally find, and use the Venus only in special occasions. So uh, only every year when the vintage, when we have a good vintage, because Capo di Stato is only produced in the best vintages, we go and uh, offer a few cases, uh, normally 150 cases, uh, with two bottles, with the male and the female version. 
So just to say, Capo di Stato is a selection nowadays. It's still a selection from the oldest vineyard called the Cinto Piante. So here it's the the last vin it's the last vineyard we we harvest during harvesting season when we have Merlot that's uh, nearly overripe and Cabernet at uh, full potential. We then harvest it together. So the vineyard is composed of the four varieties, and we harvest it together. So the blend is already composed uh, when we harvest the grapes. Then uh, for the aging, it's not only uh, 2,500 litre wooden casks, but also French oak barrique that's only used once or twice. So this is to give extra concentration and extra uh, character to the wine. Uh, it's a very limited production because it's from the oldest vineyard. So it's around 8,000 bottles a year and only in the best vintages. So it's definitely a wine to try and uh, to get all the, the potential of the vinegar through terroir when you, when you have it. Yeah, it's, uh, as, you, as you said, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a little gem. And uh, also, I think what is fascinating is the, uh, the history behind this, uh, this product that is quite uh, fascinating. Now, I would like to slightly change uh, uh, the subject. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question about... Uh, um, climate change. I mean, uh, talking to my suppliers also this, this year, uh, I, I'm hearing a lot of uh, um, stories about how difficult also this uh, harvest is going to be, because obviously uh, climate has been changing quite rapidly in the last uh, uh, vintages, and this is obviously bringing a lot of uh, challenges to um, wine producers. I guess in, in your case, probably the main concerns are going to keep uh, a good level of uh, acidity for uh, the glera in the Colli Asolani and to uh, avoid the uh, too much sugar concentration in the Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot in particular. So uh, how is climate change, uh, let's say, changing your approach to viticulture and uh, what kind of impact is this having on uh, your style of wines? Okay, so as everyone knows, probably this year has been quite tricky because we started harvesting a lot earlier than usual. And also this type of climate change that we're, uh, we're having lately is very difficult, as in hailstorms, because we lost approximately 20% of our uh, production for Azolo Prosecco uh, in June when we had a big hailstorm in the area. We were lucky enough to only lose 20% because we have other producers nearby that lost approximately 80%. But yeah, uh, for, at the moment, it's still quite bearable because it's just a matter of uh, anticipating the, the harvest. Obviously, uh, the grapes get uh, ready much earlier. But with the, the varieties that we say are uh, indigenous to us, uh, like Glera, because now we can say that Glera is an indigenous variety of the area, but also Merlot and Cabernet, because they've been planted here since the 1800s. So to us, they're indigenous. We see that they can still cope with this uh, with this climate change. It's uh, a different, obviously, it's different for uh, varieties like Chardonnay, with which we produce uh, our traditional method, a small production of traditional method wine. In this case, uh, we harvest the grapes uh, on the 8th of August, and that's very, very early for us. So in regards to what you were saying uh, of the acidity, etc., with those grapes, it's going to be difficult, especially to produce a traditional uh, style uh, wine, uh, but with the Glera and the red varieties, we're still uh, we can still cope with it. Obviously, uh, production is, isn't going to be very happy about losing the <laughs> the holidays in August, but you know <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I guess it's uh, it's uh, very very challenging. But the level of adaptability I've seen in uh, wine producer has been uh, amazing over the years. So, uh, Dominic. Thank you, thank you very much. Because uh, I I think we were able to cover uh, a lot of the important uh, uh, question I wanted to ask you, and I really hope that we were able to give listener a clearer idea on uh, the uh, the work we have been doing with Loredan Gasparini, in particular for the Asolo Prosecco and all the history and the interesting things to discover about uh, uh, Montello uh, DOC. At the beginning of November, I will be uh, in Verona attending uh, uh, Wine to Wine Business Forum. So since I'm going to be closed, probably I'm going to come and uh, pay you a visit just to say ciao. That's great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope everyone appreciates uh, what we discussed and I hope to see you all in Venigazzu so you can also 
not only hear about the history behind the winery, but also taste the wines with us. Okay, Dominic, thank you very much. And uh, Joy, over to you. Thank you. Thank Fantastic. You. And you guys went right to the wire. It is uh, 6 p.m. here. So I am going to close the room. Thank you both very, very much. That was a really great conversation. Um, and um, yeah, just it was it was really great listening. So I, um, I will be posting it on the podcast soon in the coming weeks. And I will let you guys know through message or email. And uh, Laika, before I uh, close the room, do you have anything to say or do you know who might be coming up next on our next episode? Yes. So tomorrow we're going to have Matt Pache. Um, he's going to be interviewing Giovanni Pesquero um, Elia. Um, that's going to be at 6 p.m. All right. So, yep, that's it. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. And um, until next time. Good night. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.